Good morning and welcome. Uh, let's turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We'd like to uh, finish up, complete this chapter. We've kind of, I think, camped out in chapter 8, uh, probably a little more so than any of the other chapters. Um, it's so rich. Um, we have, I think, 19 references to the Holy Spirit. You only, I think, have two of them previously in the entire book of, of Romans. So it's been very, uh, very rich speaking about the Holy Spirit, His particular ministry uh, to us. And what is important, I, I think, is very important in the, the matter of being used by the Holy Spirit is, is obedience. How important it is we need to be obedient, yield it to Him, um, to His promptings, to His leadings. And, uh, you know, He, remember, the Holy Spirit's a person, and He has a plan for each and every one of us. And, uh, and it necessitates our cooperation. We have to yield ourselves, you know, to him. Uh, he's not going to arm wrestle us uh, into submission. It would be easier if he did it that way, wouldn't it? And, uh, but he doesn't. He's gentle like a dove. Um, you know, I was reading uh, just recently uh, in my devotions this week, a couple of days ago, um, David writing there, he says, uh, you know, be not like the horse or the mule um, who needs to have their mouth held in with bit and bridle. And I was kind of thinking about that, um, how sometimes uh, the Lord may have to put a bit and bridle on us, you know, because when you look at a horse and a mule, they're two different creatures. They, they have two different personalities. A uh, mule is very stubborn, right? You, know, you see the picture of them plumping down in the middle of the road, and they're not going anywhere. A horse is different. They're very impulsive. Um, they want to run ahead. And I think we have both of those tendencies, don't we? To be stubborn and, and also to be impulsive. And so uh, um, we want to we be yielded to him. So you just have to put, you know, this is the thing about the bit. Uh, the, the horse, their mouth is very tender. And, uh, and the bit is used basically, that pressure is put on the bit to turn the horse to the right or to the left. And God doesn't want to have to. An interesting thing is that animal is moved how? By pain. And I think we have options. I think we have options. We can be moved by pain. <laughs> or we can move by, you know, being led, uh, very simply led and, and yielded to the Holy Spirit. So... Didn't plan to share that, but uh, sometimes when those things go in, they come out. You never know when they're going to come out again. Uh, so verse 28 of Romans, and uh, Paul writing here, he says, For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And moreover, whom he predestined, these also he called. And whom he called, the, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up, for us all, how shall he not with him 
uh, also freely give us all things. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Is it God who justifies? Who is he who condemns? Is it Christ who died and furthermore is also risen? Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For as it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come in the future, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. And Lord, we, um, we so concur, Lord, with the Apostle Paul. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for the cross. Lord, thank you for your great love. Thank you for all that you have done and all that you're doing and all that you have yet to do. Lord, a faithful God you are. And we praise you today. We, we thank you and we ask you as we read these incredible verses, Lord, open up our understanding. Lord, pour your truth into our hearts. Lord, may your truth change us. So often, Lord, we come to the Bible and we read it, and because of all the preoccupation we have within our lives, Lord, we can often just miss, Lord, something that is so wonderful that you desire to do within us, within our hearts, within our lives. And I pray that, Lord, that would come perhaps as we read today, as we consider these things, that would come, I pray, Lord, a new understanding, a new appreciation of, Lord, who you are and all that you've done, and of your great love, Lord, for us. Lord, how we thank you that you've given us your son, and how, having given us him, Lord, you, you, you have freely given us all things. And, Lord, you're for us, Lord, not against us. And how we praise you and thank you, Lord, uh, we commit Lord, this brief time we have this morning, maybe perhaps for even some of us, it might be the most important time of this whole week. But give us ears to hear, give us open hearts, and cause us, we pray, dear Lord, to, uh, to be able to process those things that you have, Lord, for each and every one of us. For Father, we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Somebody once said to uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, during the American Civil War, uh, he said, uh, he asked the president, is God on our side? And uh, Lincoln thought about that for a minute, uh, and his response to that was, are we on God's side? And I think that's the more important question. But I think, too, as we look at Scripture, that we can have a, a, a confidence uh, as we look at the Word of God, as we look at Scripture, that that is indeed the fact, because in Psalm 118, verse 6, it says, The Lord is on my side, 
David would say, I will not fear what can man do to me. So it's not really predicated upon, you know, our subjective experiences, our feelings, and that sort of thing. Um, we need to base basically how we're feeling and where we are on Scripture. That's why it's important. Get the Word of God, you know, into your soul, into your heart. It's the most important thing. As a matter of fact, the Bible uh, oftentimes refers to the Word that when we come to the Word, it's like eating a meal. Uh, and I think that as we read the Bible each and every day, it could be the most important meal of the whole day. And uh, do you ever notice how much you think about food? Or is it just me? Is it just me? I mean, you get up and you're, you know, sooner you're up and you're thinking about food. And you're planning ahead. Uh, you're thinking about, oh, lunch. Yeah, I've got a luncheon today. Yeah, and, and, uh, and, uh, and what about dinner? <laughs> it's endless. But the most important meal is the one spiritually... Uh, and scripturally that we take in to our lives and our hearts. Now, as we come here to verse 28, uh, Paul here speaks about, you know, we know that all things work together for good uh, to those that love God. You know, there's certainly a lot of things also, too, that we don't know. But there's many good things that we do know. Uh, and and we, can, we can know and believe simply this, that God is at work for good in all the things that are taking place in our life. you believe that? To believe that true, even now, of course, we believe it's true when good things happen. Amen? But what about the negative things? That, that's, that's the real important issue. Do we really believe that God works all things to our personal good, even when negative things take place, you know, within our life and within our experience? Um, I can remember as a new believer, when anything negative would happen to me, I'd be rebuking the devil all day long. <laughs> well, we know the devil's there and he's working, but do you know God's sovereign? God is sovereign. God is sovereign over, you know, whatever. You know, remember, nothing can come and touch your life unless it comes through the grid of God's will, you know, for our lives. So even the negative things, that there's the, this permissive will of God, the purpose of God, um, that He is working out something that's ultimately good, even though presently it can be painful. You know, even though it can be a difficult circumstance and situation, that ultimately it will always work to the good. Uh, again, we, we, we talked about this a little bit last week when we talked about Joseph, uh, Daniel, um, you know, David, all their particular experiences. And when we're going through negative things, uh, we, we tend to get negative, don't we? We tend to get negative and we tend to get somewhat unbelieving and doubtful um, about God's purpose and what God is working, you know, within our life and within our experience. We're kind of asking ourselves, hey, you know, where's God? You know, where is God in all these particular things? But the fact of the matter, He is there. The, the fact of the matter, He loves you. He loves each one of us with an intent and a very deep love, and He's working out uh, a glorious purpose. And that's why sometimes our plans and our purposes have to fail. Uh, we can't just assume all the time that, you know, pl the plans or purposes that we make, or sometimes we make them without prayer. <laughs> sometimes we, we make them without really inquiring. Um, and, and, you know, bringing them before the Lord and, and finding some direction about it, maybe in Scripture. Because there's a lot of good things that you and I can do, but are they God's purpose for us to do? Um, there's been many plans, I think, uh, good plans. They seem to have a good out, you know, as we you know, assess them, a, a good purpose and hopefully a good outcome. Uh, but is God calling us to do certain things? So sometimes our plans uh, may have to be jettisoned. 
because they're not his plan. They're not his purpose. And I think that when we understand that uh, the, the, the God in his sovereignty is working all things good for us, it helps us to jettison when those things are, you know, when we, we have to junk our plans and get rid of them, uh, that, Lord, I know that you've got a better plan, you've got a better purpose. But I think, too, I think praying uh, beforehand is very important because, you know what, it will save us a lot of time. When we get the mind of the Lord um, and we get the confirmation of the Lord to move forward, it's going to save you and I a whole lot of time. Sometimes it can save us a lot of money and a lot of our resources, but especially a lot of our time. Now, as we uh, look at here, uh, uh, to those, uh, all things work together for the good, to those who love God, to those who also, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, ultimately, as we, we get into this, he's, he's writing to those who are, who are suffering or struggling in the will of God. Uh, sometimes we think that, you know, if we're in the will of God and the purpose of God, everything should be a cakewalk, right? Well, not so. Not necessarily so. Not that we're always in a struggle. Praise God for that. Uh, but he's writing here for those that are suffering, those who are going through difficult things. And I think about many Christians in the world today are going through some very harrowing experiences, very difficult things. Uh, one of the things that we try to do every year is we try to have a mission outreach somewhere around the world to, a sh to the struggling church. Because why? We want to help them. You know, God has given the American church and the American people great means, hasn't he? Hasn't he just blessed us in an incredible kind of way? And you know what? We want to share that. Uh, we want to come in and we want to, you, know, uh, uh, you know, bear somebody else's burden. Uh, that's why, in a sense, we give to missions all year long. Um, um, that, that's something that we've always done. In, in, and I think any good church will do that. They'll have a, you'll have a considerable missions budget uh, where, uh, you know, we want to maybe help those that we know that are on the field. Uh, but also, too, I think it's important for us as individuals uh, to get involved in a personal kind of way so we hopefully provide uh, this kind of thing so that we can go in and minister to those that are hurting, those that are struggling. And so he's writing the, to them. And in verses 29 through 30 here, uh, he gives basically five affirmations for his eternal purpose in our lives. Remember, God is working out something eternal. We're very temporal. We're very short-sighted, I think. We sometimes get wrapped up in all kinds of endeavors and purposes and plans and things that are very limited. They're very temporal. Uh, but God has an eternal purpose, you know, that's at work within our life. And he's always going to, in some way or another, he's always going to bring that forth, you know, to us, you know, in our life and in our particular experience. And again, he's simply what he's reminding us and them that he's uh, basically he's got an unfailing purpose, you know, for our lives. And uh, he says here, for whom he foreknew, uh, he also predestined. So he foreknew, he loved us. Uh, in other words, uh, God, you know, in eternity past, you know, he saw, he, foresew, he foreknew, and he saw that we would, that he would call us uh, and predestine us in Jesus Christ. It's kind of a hard one to figure out. Remember when you first got saved, did you ask this question? I know I did. Uh, Lord, why did you save me? And you begin to try to figure it out. And you just kind of, you know, was it because, Lord, I'm just so wonderful? You couldn't just, you couldn't resist me? <laughs> Is that what it was? You know, sometimes, you know, Margie and I, every time, like, we see children, these little children, these little babies, uh, I, and, and I'm sure it's that way with you, too. Aren't you just so like, oh, oh, you just, you know, you just love them to bits. 
They're, they're so sweet, they're so little, they're so cute, at least at that stage in their life, <laughs> they are. And you just want to hug them, and, and, and uh, um, they're just so lovable. But why does the Lord love us? Uh, it's interesting, he spoke this to his people uh, way back uh, uh, in the law, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. You, can, uh, you don't have to reference it if you want, you can write it down, I'll read it to you. And he's saying here, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples in the face of the earth. For the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. In other words, they were not greater than anyone else. Matter of fact, he says that they were the least. And then he says in verse 8, because the Lord loves you, <laughs> because he would keep the oath which he swore uh, to your fathers. So very simply, he's reminding them that they were the object of his special love and affection. That's why God chooses us. It's based on his love. It's based on his grace and on his goodness, on his favor and his mercy. And, and it's kind of interesting here uh, because when you think about it, he chooses us um, in, in, in at, at a time um, when, we've, when we've done no good or bad. It, it's not based in any way on our performance, is it? It's based on his love. It's based on the love of God. That's why he chooses people. That's why he, uh, he basically works within our life. It always goes back, in a sense, really, to pure grace. And then the next thing he, he speaks about here and is the whole matter of predestination. He says he predestined us and that means simply this, the matter is predetermined. I think over in Ephesians chapter 4, um, you know, we read through these epistles time and time again. And sometimes we don't oftentimes maybe stop to, you know, consider or meditate upon these important uh, doctrines and truths. But he says here uh, in verse 3 of chapter 1 in Ephesians that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Uh, that, we, that, uh, that he has for us in Jesus Christ. Then he says in verse 4, something is interesting. Just as he chose us before the foundation of the world. Can you get your head around that one? It's before we could perform anything at all. That in his grace, in his mercy, he chose us. And it's all based upon his love. He, that's what he, look at, look at the end of verse 4 that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, uh, having predestined us to the adoption of sons. And anytime you see that, so that always speaks of, it's not so much a gender issue when he talks about sons and that so forth. It's a preeminent position because in that world of the, in that culture of the time, to be a son or to be adopted was uh, basically uh, to have a tremendous important position. And so God, Paul is simply telling us there, you know, the, this incredible position you know, that we have, he's adopted us. And it's all based basically not upon us. It's based upon his love. Thank God it's not based upon us. Amen? I would have never made it. And even if I had one sweet, wonderful hour in my life, <laughs> it would end. That hour would end and the old grumpy guy would come back or whatever the case may be. The, the real me would come back. But he's chosen us, you know, based upon this incredible love. 
And again, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's hard to figure that one out. You know, you can't figure these things out. I think a lot of times the, the scholars uh, try to figure them out. And um, you simply can't. You know, um, you know, Jesus said this. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. That you might go and bring forth fruit. Now, that's a hard one to figure out, isn't it? That's the words of Jesus. Not just, that's not just Paul here over in Ephesians 1.4. That's Jesus saying, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And what happens is, you know, we encourage people to make a decision for Christ and to choose Christ. And what happens is when you choose Christ, you find out you've been chosen. Amen? <laughs> but again, he chose us first in his grace, in his mercy. Now, he also says here in verse 30, we're called. It's interesting how he calls a person to himself. I think it's an internal, personal thing where we are just drawn. Because the Bible speaks about he draws us. He draws us. I think that process can take place for years. I think there are people that in different ways, they uh, say maybe uh, they heard in Sunday school, you know, they heard uh, a, a call. Uh, but, uh, you know, just like uh, at any time, you can kind of like, you know, put off obedience, put off responding kind of thing. I think a lot of folks do this. Uh, you know, sometimes you can look back over your life and can see uh, whether there's some times you may, I think after you come to Christ, you can look back and you see different times where you were prompted, you were called, you felt drawn, uh, but you didn't make a decision, you kind of put it off. Uh, but God calls us, he calls us, uh, an incredible thing. Um, I think people, I think there's some people that are called. They may not choose to respond. You know, the Bible says many are called, few are chosen. And, uh, and I think it's very important that people don't take this attitude. Well, I don't think I'm chosen because, you know, I, I'm not a goody two-shoes, you know, kind of a thing. And like I said, you choose God, you'll find out you are chosen. And the fact that he calls anybody, that's opportunity, isn't it? I mean, if God, God Almighty calls somebody, isn't that opportunity? Isn't that an open door? The Bible is replete from Old Testament to New, where God says, come to me. And that's a call. Come to me. <laughs> What's in Isaiah? Come to me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. <laughs> What's to say another psalm? Is it Psalm 50? Maybe I'm wrong. But he calls the earth from the breaking of the day, from the morning all the way the entire day. He's calling people. He's calling people today all around our world. Calling us what? Into the most ultimate and wonderful relationship than anyone. You know what? I think a lot of times, I think whether people realize it or not, that oftentimes as people go through life, they're looking for what? They're looking for a better relationship. They're, they're looking for that relationship that just sort of satisfies that aching, that longing deep within their heart, deep within their life. And that's why sometimes people get callous and they get kind of jaded and cynical when maybe they've gone through relationships and they've gotten hurt. I, I've seen some folks that they have settled for the ultimate relationship with them is with an animal. Okay? 
I mean, sometimes a relationship with an animal is a pretty nice thing. They don't talk back. You know, sometimes they listen to you and they're always kind of there by your side kind of a thing. You know, what they say, man's best friend, right? The dog. It's not really. But um, I, I think, again, I think folks can get so, you know, injured in relationships. Well, I'll just settle for a relationship with, you know, with my dog or, you know, the, the, I think guys settle for relationships with cars. Okay. Uh, cars and things like that. All right. <laughs> things that make noise <laughs> and move from point A to point B. And then he says here, also in verse 30, that, that he justifies us, that he justifies, and we talked about this in chapter 3 and chapter 4, didn't we? He justifies the person who believes in Jesus. And what is justification? Basically, God, as we believe in Jesus, God declares us righteous. Not that we've worked for it, not that we've earned it, not that we finally uh, arrived, you know, through any effort, he just simply declares, you are righteous because why? You simply believe in me. Isn't that so easy? Isn't that so incredibly simple to be justified, you know, by the grace of God and by the blood of Jesus Christ, where we simply say, Lord, I believe what you say. I believe what you did for me. Okay, I dub you. I declare you righteous. It's so beautiful. It's so free. Isn't salvation so incredibly simple but remember the fight you had coming up to it remember the war you had coming up to it and once you step in once you experience it you realize this is it this is it this is what this is what I said I think many people say this this is what I've been looking for this is the end game this is the end goal this is the ultimate relationship. He basically declares us righteous. And then here he says, of whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now this is basically the final stage. And our glorification is really yet future. Remember we were talking about this earlier in chapter 8? That's, that's what we're waiting for, right? We're waiting for the new heavens. We're waiting for the new earth. We're waiting for the new body. We're waiting basically for glorification. It's still future, but it's very interesting. I want to read to you an author who says something that I think is so incredible, so important. He says, for sanctification is glory begun. Now, there's the process of sanctification. You're, you're being molded and shaped and made like Jesus. That's what sanctification is. Every one of us are in that process now. You're in that process until the day you die, after you come to Christ, Okay. He's setting us apart. He's making us more and more like Jesus. So basically, sanctification is glory begun, glory starting out. Then he says glory, when we get to glory, is sanctification consummated. Moreover, so certain is this final stage of glorification that although it is still future, Paul puts it in the same aorist tense, which basically he puts it in the past tense. In other words, all these things here are in the aorist tense in the Greek, which basically means they are in the past tense. So Paul puts the same aorist tense as if it were past, as he has used for the other four stages which are past. 
In other words, your glorification is certain. Well, I don't feel like it. Well, most of the time I don't either. But do we believe it? Do we believe it? Someday that, like we were looking at one another this morning, someday we will look at one another in glorified bodies. And in the light of eternity, it's just going to be in a few moments. In the light of eternity, it's just going to be in a few moments. It was Pastor Bill Galton's birthday this week, and I know him so well. I've been around him so long, I know the date. So I sent a text off to him. And uh, I said, happy birthday, you old salt. He's a former Marine, too, so old salt is what you call an old Marine. I said, yet, in the light of eternity, we are still children. And he texted back to me, said, yes, in the light of eternity, I'm still a little baby. <laughs> but in a few eternal moments, folks, we'll have those glorified bodies. So don't worry about fixing up the one you got, okay? We were watching the news one news, some news program last night. And I was a young, beautiful American girl. And she is so enamored with Meghan Markle, the new princess, that she had all a series, $30,000 worth of operations to look like Meghan Markle. What, what is sad about that is outside of Christ, we don't know what our identity is. Outside of Christ, we don't realize that God created us individually, uniquely, and he loves us. There's some real handsome guys I wouldn't mind looking like, I'll tell you that right now. But how empty it would be. How empty it would be. We have a new glorious body. You're going to be the same person. There'll be a lot of changes. Don't get don't don't get worried about that, okay? <laughs> I'm looking forward to a lot of changes in me. But the same personality, the same essential person in heaven. And when you have your new glorified unit and I have my new glorified unit, maybe we arrive in heaven, don't see one another for maybe a thousand years, and we go, oh, yeah, <laughs> could know one another just like that. Folks, it's only a few moments away. 
Now, here's the summation, verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Isn't it, what is it about our, our old nature that we tend to focus on basically who or what is against us? Is, is there anybody that's against you? Maybe circumstances against you. Maybe financial things might be against you. Maybe some members of your family may be against you. I think it's important that the, the greater point is that he's making here is that you know God is for us. God loves us. He is for us. And therefore, that makes all opposition irrelevant. If God is for us, who? <laughs> who could be against us? Well, there are things that are against us. We know that. But in light of the fact that God is for us, ultimately those things are relevant. So we need to be very careful we don't live in the light of being focused on the wrong thing. Remember Jacob, after he lost Joseph, and then Benjamin was being held in Egypt. And what did he say? All things are against me. No. Even though it looked like that momentarily, he was going to get back Joseph and Benjamin with interest. All things are not against us because God is for us. And he's faithful to his word. Be careful that you don't just focus on the negatives of your life. And yes, there are things against us. Not to say that there aren't things against us. People can be against us. The system can be against us. The world, the flesh, and the devil can be against us. But God always has the last word. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, verse 32, he drives this point home again. There's truth. Wanting us to realize that God is totally, absolutely for us. Because even though we, we read that, we hear that, we look at the reality of the circumstances of our life that we're facing and the difficulties. And, and sometimes they seem insurmountable. Sometimes they seem like a mountain. But remember Jesus said about faith, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to that mountain, be thou removed. And I think that mountain that he's referring to there is simply a mountain of difficult negative circumstances. How are, they, how are they to be overcome? By, by our faith, by our trust in the fact that God is for us. He's going to work all things to the good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. He reminds us this by saying, uh, He who did not spare His own Son but he delivered them, him up for us all. 
How shall he not with them, having given us him, he will also freely give us all things? You know, a lot of times, you know, we give, and there's, you know, we give in a measured way, whether that's appropriate or not. Oftentimes, when we give, we give in a measured way, but not so with God. God gives abundantly. God gives graciously. God gives the very best because what did he do? When he gave us his son, he gave us himself. God came in the person of his son. He was fully God and fully man. And having given himself, Be careful that the devil doesn't lie to you thinking that God's holding back something from you or keeping you back from something. That was the lie of the garden. That was the lie, the lie the devil gave in the garden. If God loved you, he'd let you eat from that tree. And the devil oftentimes, he comes in with his temptations and he offers us something lesser but he does it in such a way as the world goes after certain things. We kind of think we're, you know, we're sh we, you know, we got short, hand, short circuited. Again, having given us a son, will he withhold any good thing? <laughs> Certainly not. And who shall give a charge? or an ex uh, accusation, or bring a charge against God's elect, against you and against me. There was another question out there. Is it God who justifies? And we know that the devil will come in, and he will accuse us. He's an accuser of the brethren, right? Accuses about some past failure, some issue in your life, some area of failure. Who is he who condemns? We know the, con, you know, the, the condemner of the brethren is, is the devil, isn't he? He's always accusing us, always condemning us. He is, in our, he is our adversary. There's no doubt about that. Yet, he says, is it Christ who died? <laughs> you know, the Holy Spirit will convict us, but he will never condemn us. Here, here's, I think, how you maybe ascertain the difference between conviction and condemnation. Condemnation will always drive you from God. Anybody, has anybody ever condemned you about something? And what do you want to do? You just want to get away. You just want to get, you're driven from them. I just want to get away from this person, from their condemnation, from their accusations from their aspersions and all of that. The thing about conviction is this. It draws us. It draws us unto the Lord. You know, anytime you see even Jesus working with the apostles, like the apostle Peter, you know, even after his denials, he spoke some things that were difficult there was conviction in the life of Peter. Yet at the same time, too, 
Have you, have you ever had somebody correct you? And it's just been in perfect love. Perfect love. And uh, <clears throat> as you hear the, the conviction, you're, you're, you're sort of stabbed to your heart. At the same time, too, it's not wanting, you don't want to run. You want to just break and you want to, you want to just weep. And you know that the person has said it because of their love. And that's what, that's what Jesus does for you and me. And I think it's important, as we know that in our own lives, that God wants to use us like that in the lives of other people. Nobody is ever more like Satan than the person who condemns and accuses. That should never be of us. A lot of that going on in the world. Did you ever notice, I, I notice when some figure in our society that has notoriety, when they fall, there's no forgiveness. And oftentimes you, you hear the responses. There was, um, I read the long version of the uh, response to being found out that he was caught in that prostitution sting. Uh, Mr. Kraft, the, uh, the owner of the Patriots. And as I read the long version of it, I, I, was, I was moved by it. it. It seemed legitimate. But as I looked online, At some of the news stories, there was this article about all those who fell. They fell for the apology of Mr. Kraft. And I thought, isn't that just like the world? No matter what you do, they won't forgive you. No matter what you say, it's never enough. Not so with God. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ. Is it Christ who died and furthermore is also risen? Who is even at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us? Why would he condemn us if he's praying for us? He's praying for our restoration. He died for us. He's praying for us. You are the apple of his eye. He's concerned for you and for me. We're his beloved. He goes further by saying in 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, he has this list here, and he's really speaking about, can these things separate us from the love of Christ? Trials, stress, rejection, 
no food or clothing, danger or war. Can any of these things really separate us from the love of Christ? And, you know, some people would protest. If God loved us, you know, why does he permit such things to touch our lives? You ever hear that one? That, that's an old one. That's been around, you know. Uh, uh, if you've ever read uh, Randy Alcorn's book, If God is Good, uh, it is a priceless treasure, that book. That book is priceless. I've never underlined and held on and referred back to a book like that one because it had so many great quotes. And he gives the reasons for, you know, why we suffer, why we, you know, why we have to endure, you know, difficult things. And I think sometimes it's hard for us to understand, you know, why God allows those things and permits those things in our life because so often don't we as parents try to protect our children from everything? And oftentimes in our attempt to protect them from everything, we injure them. Because by the time they go out in the world, they don't know how to act or handle any difficult trial in their life. And it's kind of interesting because if we go back uh, just a few verses here um, in chapter 5, notice what he says here. He says, not only that, but we also glory in what? Tribulations, our trials. We glory. Why do we do this, Paul? Why do we glory in these things? Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Or some translations say patience. Some other translations say endurance. And perseverance produces character. Then he goes on to say character produces hope or expectation. You see, God allows us to go through these things because he's producing something eternal. He's producing integrity and character. And I wish it could be made in another way. But it can't. It's made through trials challenges and suffering and pain. I've looked back at my life and you know the most important lessons that I've learned is not, be, not from the times where I was laughing. It was from the times where I was hurting and crying. The lessons I've learned the most have cost me the most. And God is working out something eternal that can't be taken away from you, a character, a development. It goes on to say, as it is written, you know, speaking about tribulation or distress or persecution, for your sake or for God's sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And we just happen to live in a nation and in a time where we're protected. But not so in other parts of the world. And this is what happens basically, you know, when, when the truth of God is rejected, when God is rejected, when his laws are rejected, these things here in verse 36, they fill the void. Don't see, be surprised if as we get closer to the Lord, it's coming. 
there's going to be more and more persecution, I think, even in our own country against Christians. Colson Center produced a uh, article this week about all the persecution of Christians in Africa. But it seems to be if anybody else from any other faith dies, it's got front, front page news. You notice that? Not the church. I think what he's saying here is that not even death, which is our worst fear, can basically separate us from the love of Christ. And death is our worst fear, isn't it? Hebrews 2 says, tells us people live in their whole lifetime in bondage to it. Be careful that you don't live in bondage to death, that your life is all about self-preservation. Shouldn't be for us. Not that we live recklessly. But sometimes when we're so caught up in preserving our own life, we do, we're afraid to do anything for God. If somebody kills us for our faith, you know what, folks? We graduate. We graduate with honors. But that's our worst fear, isn't it? Really, come on now, be honest about it. That's why Jesus said, if you lose your life for me, you find it. If you lose your life for me, you find it. Be careful that you don't get caught up in this American dream of living to just preserve your lifestyle. It's empty. Better to live for Jesus. To live as Christ, to die, is a great loss. No. To die is great gain. I know we read these things, but do we believe them? Now, in verse 37, I think this is important in light of what's going on in our culture, our society today. Be careful that you do not allow yourself to become a victim of circumstances. God doesn't want you and me living with a victim mentality. That will handicap, handicap you. That will cripple you. And any one of us have enough in our lives to feel that we've been, we've been victimized. All that's going to do is defeat you. The problem with victimization is people fall into a pattern of self-pity. And I'll tell you what, that can be a real pit. That can be a real pit. That's very, very difficult to get out of. Remember when Peter said to Jesus, pity thyself. Jesus is talking about the cross. And Peter thinks he's helping him out. And he says, far be it from thee, Lord, which in the Greek means pity thyself. 
You're not going to die. What did Jesus say to Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan. Here's what I've deduced from that. Self-pity is satanic. And don't fall into some victimization. I've seen a lot of people do that in our culture for, for many different reasons. Something that happened in their past. Something that happened to their family. Something that happened to their people. Yet in all these things, what things? All these negative things he's talking about here. We are more than conquerors through him who loves us. See, God declares that you and I, because of Christ, we're super victors. We're more than conquerors. Anytime I see that word conqueror, I kind of go back to being a student in Catholic school. Remember the conquistadors. I like that word. I don't know. It just seems like it has power. The conquistadors. You are conquistadors because of him. More than the conquistador. You're a super victor. And I know what you're thinking. I don't feel like one. It's not predicated upon your feelings. It's not predicated upon your feelings. Predicated upon God who spoke it because what he has done for us. If you have received the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, you're not a victim. Shake that off. Remember Paul when the serpent bit him? He shook it off. Be careful the serpent doesn't bite you with his poison. And you get wrapped up in some cultural mindset. Shake it off. You're a super victor because of Jesus Christ and what he has done. And Paul was a persuaded man. I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, uh, principalities nor powers, talking about demonic powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And he mentions it three different times in this last handful of verses. And even though the apostle John is called the apostle of love, I think, the, I think Paul's insights on the love of God are equally as great. you realize this morning over in Ephesians which is interesting Ephesians has always interested me because of what the Lord says to them in chapter 2 he said you've left your first love when you read the book of Ephesians every chapter Paul touches on what? love love and it's possible for the child of God for different reasons. You get beat up by life and you don't, you don't feel the love of God. I want to tell you this morning, based on the word of God, and over in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us that we are greatly loved. Don't 
Don't become a victim. Don't get bit by the poison of this world. And get full of doubts and fears and worries and anxieties. And in spite of what might be going on in your life right now, he loves you intently. He's working out an eternal purpose. Isn't it interesting, no matter where you go in the Bible, we always come back to this love. We always come back to the love of God. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your great love demonstrated in the cross. And Lord, you have also, you tell us in Romans 5 that the love of God is poured out in our hearts through the work and agency of the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you. And Father, I pray that for us this morning, that whatever circumstance might be presently in our lives. And maybe it's something that relates to the past. Maybe a relationship that has fallen apart. Maybe having even been rejected. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us that you would indeed Shed abroad, pour forth, Lord, your love, that we would know it. We, we, do, we do believe it theologically, but, but are we experiencing it practically? Lord, help us to do that. Lord, minister in a special way. Bind up wounds. Lord, heal hurts. Lord, do that, Lord, in us to realize, Lord, that you chose us before the foundations of the world. You never chose us based on any performance on our part. It's all based on your great and awesome love. Lord, may we as your people, may we sense to a never-increasing degree your great and awesome love. Holy Spirit, Lord, do that, we pray in us. In Jesus' name, amen.